know, the other thing is I felt like I couldn't not tell this story. But it's almost like I'm waiting just for the, to like get that same feeling inside me like like I can't not write this book. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to be joined by Eileen Brill, author of the novel A Letter in the Wall. The amount of time that I spent every day for a few years working on this was so much more intense than any of the professional writing I did in the past. Eileen Grace Brill is a painter, writer, and sign language interpreter who grew up outside of Philadelphia and graduated from Carnegie Mellon with a B.S. in economics. She has written professionally for the restaurant, hotel, and commercial real estate industries. A Letter in the Wall is her first novel, though she has been a writer all her life, beginning at age four when she wrote a poem, filled with spelling errors, for her babysitter. Eileen's short story, Christmas Angel, appeared in the international literary magazine Beyond Words in 2021. She and her husband Eli raised their sons in her hometown of Alkins Park, Pennsylvania, where they still live, along with their two adopted mutts, Athena and Gaia. So I want to start where I imagine most of your interviews start. Can you tell us about the letter that you found in the, the walls of your home? <laughs> yeah, the, the backstory is a story in itself. Um, I moved into this house that I live in now in 2007 with my husband and my two sons, and uh, we had an electrician putting in a new outlet on the third floor. This house was built in 1920, and it, you know we, we did some renovating, and I happened to be standing in the hallway when the electrician was uh, fishing in the, in the wall for, to pull out wires, and I heard him kind of muttered to himself something, oh, what's this paper? And I, I went in there and he pulled out a piece of paper and he was about to toss it. And I, I said, no, no, let me look at it. And it was an old tattered envelope addressed to someone in New Jersey. So, right, so I'm, I live outside of Philadelphia. So uh, I was very curious and I opened it and um, there was a handwritten letter and uh, it was not dated, uh, but it was written on personalized stationery. And the address was my address, and it had a, a a woman's name. I didn't know how old the person was, and it was kind of a cryptic letter. And I, it was written to a, a male living in New Jersey, and I didn't know what their relationship was. So of course, I, I googled this woman, and it turns out that her family—they were the first owners of my house, and they were a prominent Quaker family. Um, and there was a lot of information about her father because he was a uh, a drama critic and sports editor for 
the Philadelphia Bulletin. There was information about her aunt and uncle who actually owned the house. And I found out, uh, you know, some other things about her, but very general information, sort of the timeline of her life. And, um, but the one thing that I learned very quickly was that she was murdered in 1971 in Oklahoma. So, of course, I just, I had to know more about her and her life and what took her there. And that's how it all started. And the, and the letter itself um, was, was very cryptic. I could not tell the relationship between her and the boy she was writing to. But I did find out that she was probably a teenager when she wrote it. And it was probably written around 1930. And, of course, I had to do some research on the boy too. And he was about the same age, but the letter just gave no indication of what, you know, what they were to each other. It was very cryptic. Well, it's incredible that you, you found that letter in, and it's just so fascinating. Were you immediately fascinated with it? I mean, how, how long did it take for you to kind of get this idea that you wanted to write a story around this letter writer? So, um, yeah, I mean, right from the start, I wanted to know about her, and I uh, kind of plunged into research right away, but then I got busy with other things. I was, um, uh, you know, my children were younger, and I, I was, uh, you know, had a lot of activities that I was doing and work, and I, I really couldn't give it my full energy initially, so I would kind of come back to it off and on over the next few months, and I wanted to initially write a biography about her because um, I, I just, I couldn't understand how this person who was raised as a, you know, a Quaker and, and the rest of her family members remained Quakers, how she ended up so far from that because by all accounts, she was not still a practicing Quaker at the end of her life. And how did she get from Philadelphia to Oklahoma? And so, yeah, I, I, I gave it a lot of energy in the beginning and then I, and then a few years went by and I kind of put it in the file and then I'd come back to it now and then. And, um, it got to the point where, um, I was so intrigued that I started contacting, uh, the, so she, she died near Oklahoma city. She was murdered there. I contacted the courthouse there to see if I could get any records of a murder trial and learned that it was a, hung jury and and her you know anyone that was questioned any suspects were let go and it just it it just got more and more thick into the weeds of like who who was this woman she was married several times she had children from different marriages she um you know there were the only the only um inklings of who she may have been or what she may have been like came from newspaper articles that ran after her murder that kind of like things that the local police said about her or that people that knew her said about her. And I was getting this kind of psychological profile of someone who was kind of always giving a lot of pushback and maybe even, um, you know, didn't care, didn't care if people thought she was pushy or, you know, uh, self-interested she had some kind of um some kind of objective in mind and I kind of started like putting together this idea of who I thought she was and pretty soon I thought you know what I have I have kind of a skeleton of a really good fictionalized story here because 
no matter how much research I do, I'm not going to really get to the whys of, of, you know, how her life took the turns it did. I could, I could set up a timeline of her life and when her children were born and, you know, her married names and, um, you know, kind of that, the, the the time frame, but not like why did she make these decisions and some you know some of the things she did and some of the the relationships she had were kind of seemed like they were not in her best interest. So I kind of put together this personality profile of her, and um, you know just using my imagination, I came up with my idea of who I thought she was and and why she made the decisions she did. So you mentioned that there was a, a hung a hung jury for the the trial. Did she ever receive any kind of justice? And I wonder, do you think this story gives her any kind of justice in the end? So, in terms of justice, I have a feeling that this was um, this this was something that actually affected her adult children throughout their lives, because I don't believe that there was, that the uh, murderer was ever identified. In fact, I remember, I don't know how I came across this, but it was sort of this, this website for unsolved murder cases. And I, I saw that her youngest daughter, she had four children, the youngest one who now is probably in her eighties. She's the only one I believe that's still living. She had gotten on this website and there was a whole thread of, you know, conversations about different cases. And she was asking for this person, I guess he was an ex-detective. She was asking, you know, for him to please look into her mother's case. And her mother was murdered in 1971. And I think this post was probably from the late eighties. So, um, I don't think there was justice, justice in terms of finding, identifying the murderer. Although, um, she, one of the articles I found that was from the Daily Oklahoman, Daily Oklahoman newspaper after her murder said that uh, people, um, people said that she feared that her former business partner wanted to have her killed. So um, he was definitely a suspect, but he was one of the people that was let go. So I think that um, if that was the case, justice was not served. I think my story. I think it kind of does, uh, there's, a, there's a redemptive angle in that because I, I did my very best. I, well, let me back up a little. I want to separate the, the fictionalized story and, the, and my protagonist from the real person because I, di- I didn't know her, nor did I speak to anyone who actually knew her. So I don't want this, I don't want to claim that this is an actual portrait of this real person. She was just the inspiration. However, I like to think that by taking into account all of the little tiny shreds of, and I guess the nuances of what makes a person an individual, I, I tried to take all that into account to build a well-formed person and understand her, her motivations and her desires and her frustrations. And I think I'm pretty good at, um, I guess from an, from an, empathetic angle, like looking at someone that others might find difficult or, um, you know, their own worst enemy and, and kind of looking at them with some empathy and saying, why, why did something that, you know, an action that others might think was unwise, why would that person do that? Yeah. In terms of like 
creating a sympathetic character that if you may you may not like her but you can at least relate to her I think I I think that justice may have been served that way but I wasn't trying to um again I wasn't trying to tell the story of a real person it was just sort of the inspiration um but you know you can certainly understand her for example her mother in real life her mother died in the flu epidemic in 1919 and uh she, she would have been about three and a half and I just imagined how that might affect a young child and then to grow up, um, you know, without a mother and without any siblings and sort of what I imagined to be a father who wasn't like either fully engaged or who just because of the, the time period that they lived in wasn't able to give her what, for example, a mother might give her. So all those little pieces I sort of sewed together to kind of, come up with my protagonist and you know I don't know I'll, I'll never have a way of knowing if I hit the mark but um I do think that that my character is interesting and intriguing and um her motivations would seem to fall in line with the way I shaped her life events well I think you definitely hit the mark as far as a fictional character goes um someone that readers can empathize with and I, you can especially see it right away in the first chapter when we really get to see inside of her head and her life. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the process of doing that, of character development, of getting, of zooming in that close? Um, you have little details about what she did, but then more details about how she felt and what she was thinking um, was that challenging? Was Did it take many revisions? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Um, sure, yeah. So I I did want the first chapter, which, you know, it, the, it doesn't start out linear, linearly, obviously. It's, it's, she's already an adult in her 50s when, with the first chapter. Um, and I, I wanted to um, employ the whole show-don't-tell uh, you know, I, I wanted to give information without explicitly saying a lot about where, you know, where she is coming from. And this being my first novel, I've been a writer all my life and I, I wrote professionally um, and, you know, have always wanted to write a novel. Um, but, you know, when it push came to shove and I sat down to write it, I had to constantly remind myself okay, let's be nuanced here and don't like just say what's happening or say what she's thinking, but kind of give little, little hints about it. So, um, I had to constantly remind myself and I actually worked with, uh, when I was about three quarters through the manuscript, I worked with a developmental editor who, uh, you know, would remind me every once in a while, just pull back a little and, and try to be a little more subtle, but let, let the reader deduce this. And, in terms of character development, I think um, that was actually the first thing I did before I started even like working out the plot. I wanted to make sure that I knew Joan and that I knew um, if not if not every you know step she was going to take or or every plot, I wanted to know why is she gonna I just kept asking myself why okay if she does this, if she moves, why if she um, if she talks to this person, why? If she gets angry, why? And I, and I got it down to such a, such a 
detailed level that I felt like, especially when I was writing dialogue, it just kind of came to me. I, I kind of thought as I was writing it, I wonder if this is what actors go through when they're playing a role and nothing is explicitly given to them, but they have to find the motivations in the, in the part that they're playing. And, and they have to kind of know that they have to know the role they're playing with even more detail than the script will give them. And then so that they're able to move forward and make it and be a convincing character. And I kind of felt the same way about Joan that I just wanted her to be real. I, I didn't, necessarily think that she was always going to be likable but I wanted people to act to at least feel she was authentic and um the first chapter I wanted to kind of I I don't know if I was putting too much in it but I wanted to kind of set out okay this is kind of who she is you don't know exactly where she came from but she's gonna she's going to kind of hint at each thing she's going to hint where she came from and hint that she's not from this area and hint that she's from, you know, sort of a very prominent family or, or, or born into a privileged life. So that, that was kind of fun because there was a little bit of foreshadowing and a little bit of um, a quiet reveal without giving too much away. That's actually the, when I have been doing readings, that's chapter one is actually the one I've been reading because you don't really have to, well, you don't have to have any context with most first chapters, but it really doesn't, um, it's, it's, it seems to me the only chapter that works in terms of not needing context. I was, I'm kind of getting, <laughs> I'm getting a little tired of reading chapter one. I feel like I can, I know it without reading it. And I, I was looking through the book last night to see what else I might be able to read. And, and so many other chapters just contain so, so many characters and references to previous chapters that they don't work as well. Yeah, I think a, a lot of authors can relate to that when you get to the point when you're reading your excerpt where you're no longer consciously reading it, you're looking around <laughs> at people's reactions and paying attention to other things. It's just kind of automatic at some point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can you tell us a little more about Joan's life or at least the life you created for her? Um, it seems she had a lot of challenges pursuing her career and dreams in a time when women weren't always encouraged to do so. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think that that was that was, that was a, one of her main frustrations throughout her life, and and part of it was like she she didn't have a role model, you know. Yes, likely because of of when she was born. Um, you know, when she was a teenager in the 30s, she 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 wants she, she kind of discovers a, um, something that she's good at that she enjoys, and she kind of approaches her father about it, and he gives her some pushback, and you know she acquiesces because she's a teenager in 1930, 1931, and this is her father, and he's got his expectations of her, and then she gets married in the 30s, and her husband has his own expectations, and you know, um, now in 2022, women who, uh, women who have a choice, uh, they, you know, they become a wife and a mother if they choose to, and they, um, can have a career if they choose to, if they're able to, so if they have the means to, you know, be able to make that choice. And they also have role models and, and, you know, I mean, my mother, my own mother was born in 1931, and she had several careers throughout her life. 
and she was my role model. But Joan uh, very much wanted something, but but couldn't quite figure out how to get it. And I think at least when she was very young, her role models were sort of like the highest of the high, like someone like Amelia Earhart or, um, you know, the Roosevelt's secretary of labor, who was a woman. These are, these are like such far reaching lofty, I guess, people to, to want to emulate and very unrealistic. But so she, she wasn't seeing women around her having careers. And I think, um, that, that remained a source of frustration for her, uh, you know, and I don't want to give anything away, but I think that, like like most of us, she does evolve and she does get to know herself a little bit better and change. But there's always this need throughout her life, this theme of feeling invalidated, feeling like people are not taking her seriously or she's being disrespected, even when that's not the case. And you know, some might argue that's a, that was a holdout, that was a holdover from when she was younger, and she felt like, you know, she was paranoid she thought people were talking about her they didn't take her seriously or whatever whatever her feelings were as a as a child as a young person she carried some of that into her adulthood which you know to be fair a lot of us do that too um but she never quite shook that feeling like she was not getting her day or in her due respect but you know for sure like she I think she came to to see that there there were opportunities for women but even you know even even in the seventies, I think it was very limited, and and the 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 women that that made their mark or or self actualized or whatever you want to call it, um, they were they were kind of trailblazers, and without um, peers or role models or or anyone else sort of leading the charge, I think a lot of women had to figure out on their own, and you know Joan was Joan was trying to figure that out. Were you tempted to make her sort of one-sided as someone that everyone would like, that every reader will will like, or um, because you, you made her very complex and, um, you know, you made her fight for what she wanted and she wasn't always nice about it, I guess. Um, was that hard for you to to give her a little, a little edge to her? No, and that was my intention. Um, I, I didn't want, I wanted her to be com- complex because... You know, it's easy when the protagonist is likable to, to want to root for them and and want their success. It's it's harder when you start out rooting for them and then you're kind of disillusioned or you're not sure how you feel. And what I wanted to do um, was to create a character that people were going to have disagreements about and that... Um, Again, you you may not like her, or you may question her decisions. Maybe you can't even relate to her, but you feel like, okay, I can see where this is coming from. And I also wanted her to have qualities that you might like, and to be able to, you know, possibly. I want a reader to be able to maybe see some things that they could say. Well, yeah, I guess she was, you know, she was, um, she was a kind person. She wasn't a cruel person. She was hardest on herself, but, you know, I think. For me, when I when I'm reading a story, I I love when the main character is is complex and multi layered. I love when they change. You know, I love the the idea of a either a, a uh, someone who starts out good going bad, or someone who is sort of uh, 
uh, on the wrong side kind of coming around and redeeming themselves or doing something great. I love that flip-flop. I love when characters evolve. And I like when they're... Um, I like protagonists that aren't always likable because, like, in real life... Real life is messy. People's lives are messy. And people you meet have all kinds of layers. Um, you know, we, we are, none of us, none of us is a perfect human being without our flaws. And I still do think that even people that on the surface who seem, um, you know, just they, their decisions are confounding and they just seem like complicated and difficult when you get to know them or when you understand why they are the way they are, you can at least see them with some empathy or, or understanding. And it's just, it's just interesting. Cause I don't think, I think a, a character that um, in the story that kind of makes predictable <laughs> decisions or is, you know, look, you don't know. It's not, I think it's not very interesting to read a character who's just sort of one dimensional and you just can predict where they're going. And so I, I think with Joan, I wanted to um, have a character that people were not going to be able to guess her next move. And I, I wanted every chapter to kind of be like, okay, now what's she going to do? Now what's she going to do? And where's her life going to end up? And um, I just think it, it makes it for, it makes, it sort of adds to the suspense of the story, I guess. Yeah, those are those are definitely all valid points about how to make um, good, rounded characters that 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 people want to know more about and continue turning the page. Let's go into your background a little bit. You you mentioned already that you don't have a, a background per se in in fiction, um, but you have a, you have rather a degree in economics, and you've written professionally for the restaurant and hotel industry and real estate industries. Um, tell me about what that was like switching gears from one kind of writing to another. Well, I've always written, uh, I've always been a creative writer as well. It's sort of not professionally, but, um, you know, in my, in my personal life. And I probably have started and not finished five or six novels at various points in my life. And part of that, part of the reason why I didn't finish each one was either I was writing about something that I I wasn't ready to actually I, I didn't have enough life experience to continue or I or I just felt like the inspiration was waning and it didn't feel right um you know I've written short stories I, I wrote a story about my mother um who, who died a couple of years ago and she had dementia and I and it was actually um published in a literary magazine so that was kind of cool so I've al I've always been a writer um from a very young age, a creative writer. Um, but yeah, I, I had up until this point never written an entire book for sure. Um, and hadn't done this professionally, but I, I did know going into this that I'm a, I, just in terms of the technical aspects of writing, I knew that I was a good writer. I knew that I have a strong imagination and that I love to write and that, um, I knew that I was able to to write a story start to finish that made sense and um, how do I say this that that I, I I knew that with with this inspiration of this letter and this person's life that I was going to to write 
a story that had that that could be a fully formed and finished book as opposed to the thing I had started previously in my life. Um, and you know, the other thing is I felt like I couldn't not tell this story. It was really, it was the first time in my life that I, I sat down and, and every time I sat down to write, it, it, it just felt natural and good and like cathartic. And it wasn't, a situation where I was, you know, okay, now I got to sit down now, open up my laptop, figure out what I want to say. I don't know. I guess I just felt very connected to my character. And, um, you know, the, it, I had a personal connection to her because, you know, it's my house where I was imagining her growing up and um, it was, it felt close to me. But yeah, it's definitely different to, <laughs> it's definitely different to have uh, to have to um, sit down every day to do writing that is not connected to writing for someone else. And that was kind of cool. Like I was, the amount of time that I spent every day for a few years working on this was so much more intense than any of the professional writing I did in the past. Um, and that took up, you know, that used to take up a lot of brain power, but this just, this was so different and so just so enjoyable. And, um, you know, I, I have ideas for my next book, but it's almost like I'm waiting just for the, to like get that same feeling inside me. Like, like I can't not write this book. So I, I wasn't, it's so funny cause I, I knew what I would do whatever took to get this published, whether, if, you know, if it was years and years and years of sending out queries and trying to find a publisher, but I wanted to get it written more because I just could not have other, I wanted other people to read it. I wanted a story to be told and read. And, um, boy, if, if I could get that feeling again, whew, that would be amazing. Cause it was really kind of, um, one of those like life experiences that I, I will never forget just that the, the, especially the, the last two or three years of just sitting down and writing every day. It was, it was amazing. Well, I can see how the personal connection would make it more motivating for you. And I like what you said about you, you're not writing for someone else. I guess I, um, a lot of us who write fiction probably don't think of it that way, but it is a pretty freeing experience to write the story that, that you, you feel inclined to, to write, um, you know, rather than writing for a paycheck and, you know, mm -hmm. fitting someone else's schedule. Right, for sure. Hey there, this is Colin Mustful, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction and the host of this podcast. I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our member-only content area. Our member area features historical fiction short stories and novel excerpts that are exclusive to History Through Fiction. The stories are submitted by independent authors and curated by our editors. Sign up is free and all you need to do is create a username and password. Just go to historythroughfiction.com and click on Member Area, or you can find it directly by going to historythroughfiction.com slash member dash area. I hope you'll check it out.
can you tell us a little bit about the publishing experience from from your experience? Um, I saw that you went with Spark Press. Has that been a good experience for you? It has. Um, so I think I, I mentioned I was had been working with a developmental editor, and she, she comes from a publishing background. So when I started the process of querying publishers, um, I ran everything by her first, and, you know, she would sort of, give me the yay or nay, this, you know, they're, they're legitimate, they're reputable, stay away from them, they're vanity press, you know, whatever. And she was really instrumental in, in kind of guiding me there. And, um, I, I guess I had been doing it for almost a year and I was getting, what would typically happen would be, um, and I was sending queries to agents as well. Um, I would send whatever, you know, they required the first hundred pages, the first chapter, the first three chapters, whatever. And a lot of times they would ask for the entire manuscript after that. And then I'd hear back from them and they'd say, yeah, no, it's, it's just not working for me. Good luck. And, um, I was getting frustrated and, but I knew that, that other writers, particularly, you know, first time to, you know, authors, um, could spend years querying and you know you get a lot of rejections and just hoping for that you know it only takes one offer and I got an uh, I got an offer from Spark Press she writes press um I guess um yeah it was ju just almost a year to when I started querying and right away I asked my editor I said um you know do you know anything and you know Spark Press I think they're the umbrella for she writes press and right away she said Oh yeah, they're they're very reputable. They have a really good reputation. They um, and she said, you know, I I would feel really good about about you publishing with them. And I had a conversation with Brooke Warner, head of Spark Press, and um, I just had a really good feeling about it after speaking with her. She's, you know, she knows the business. It 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 has it has felt like a partnership, to be honest. Um, and I guess the way I look at it is. I mean, it's, it's an, <laughs> writing a book these days is an investment. It's a business investment. I, I hated to do this in the beginning, but I've come to understand that, you know, most of us are not going to hit the jackpot with our novels. We are not going to get, <clears throat> you know, have it, have it developed into a film, you know, if, and that it's, it can be a money losing venture, but it's also, um, if you are someone who knows that you've got a few more books in you, it's a, it is a financial investment. And like any business, you're going to put out money in the beginning and you may or may not see a return on your investment, but it's, it's sort of a, it's an, it's an investment of love as well as money because you, you love what you're doing. Um, with Spark Press, um, I feel like they have guided me through this whole process and, you know, they know what they're doing in terms of, um, you know, everything from the design of the, the book, you know, the cover and, and, and the inside, the font, and it, you, you hold these books in your hands and you can see the difference between a Spark Press book and, um, you know, some of these other so-called hybrid presses. Um, they are truly a hybrid press. They have traditional distribution and um, they just put out a really beautiful product. And in fact, um, I remember holding, when I got the first copy of the ARC, 
and I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is, this looks like the final copy. This is gorgeous. And really the difference between the arc and the final copy is really the thickness of the paper, but the arc itself is beautiful. And I've had people um, comment on how, how, you know, nice the, the book looks, which is obviously really important, but um, yeah, they just know the business. And I guess my options at that point when they made the offer would have been to, you know, continue querying and decide how long I wanted to go down that path and where I could have self-published, which, you know, it's, there's no shame anymore in self-publishing and there's so many resources, but I, I knew myself and I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, or to just say, you know what, I am whatever I was at the two years ago. So I was 56, 55, 56. I want this book published and um, I feel good about Spark Press. I talked to probably about 10 other authors that had worked with Spark Press at various points in their writing career. So like some of them, they their debut novels were published with Spark Press. Some of them actually had published with traditional publishers and Spark Press and self-published. So they had sort of ran the gamut of their experience. And they all had very good things to say about uh, Brooke and, and the team at Spark Press. So I, I, you know, I didn't go into it blindly, um, you know, but it, it's, it's tough out there. It's a, it's a competitive business, which I didn't know. I didn't understand what publishing a book involved and how hard it is to get your book, especially if it's a, if your debut, if it's a debut book to get it under the eyes of readers. And it's just, it's such an interesting business. Um, that I think most people who have not been in it, I mean, you come in as a novice and you learn so much and um, it's very, very eye-opening from that perspective. Yeah, it's it's definitely eye-opening for, for most debut authors, but it's encouraging to hear your story and the fact that you had someone to kind of guide you along. And it sounds like you, you made the right choice in the end. I do feel that I did. And I, and I, um, I actually spoke with, I got, I did get an offer from another press that, um, they, they are hybrid and they're, you know, they're legitimate. They have the, uh, people, their team there, they all come from a literary background, really super nice people. Um, but I, in talking with some of the people that worked with that press, I got the feeling that you're, you really kind of they hold your hand in the beginning, but then you're kind of on your own and there's not a lot of consultation or um, their expertise sort of has an end point. And I feel that with Spark Press, um, I really do feel like I do, I never really felt abandoned and I, and I still, you know, this is, um, when did my, my book came out? May 24th. It doesn't, they don't shut the door once you've, <laughs> once you've launched. So um, yeah, I do. And I feel like I've definitely um, been guided to the point that my second time around when I when I have a, a, my next book, that I kind of have a, a very complete, very full understanding of what it takes to, to bring a to bring a book to life and to, to send it out there and to get it published. And um, so and, and, you know, I just love too that um, Brooke will hold webinars for her, um, for her writers. And so every spring and fall, they have a certain amount of 
writers that they're going to be publishing and you know she has webinars she has access to marketing professionals that come you know to talk to us and um, I just felt like it was just so just it's almost like um, (laughs) it's sort of like you're you're paying for an education you're you're getting they're they're publishing your book and bring it to life but you're also sort of it's sort of like uh, well few college crash courses in, in, in publication. So now that you've learned all that, um, where are you at with your next project? <laughs> so I'm just at the, I'm sort of compiling, um, I'm, I guess it's, it's sort of the research before the research. I'm, I have an idea of the story. I'm gathering articles. I'm kind of taking notes on who I want to talk to and which direction I want to take. It's hard right now. I mean, I, I write, I don't, wouldn't say I write every day now. Um, I do write several times a week just to, um, whether it's my blogs or, or just in my journal or creatively or things not connected to what my next book might be just to keep that, that muscle working. Um, but it's really hard with the launch of A Letter in the Wall to to kind of focus my energy on the next thing because I'm still so enmeshed in this, but I know very quickly um, these live events will kind of, you know, died out a little bit. And um, even though the, the marketing of this book was never going to stop, I, I want to keep it going and keep up the momentum, but I, there will come a time when it's sort of like a little, it'll, it'll probably feel a little more liberating just to get away from, a letter on the wall and, and put my energy into the next thing. And, um, the idea that I'm working with does involve another complex female character. Um, and I don't know if you can call historical fiction, uh, from, I don't know if you can call fiction from the seventies and eighties historical fiction, but (laughs) if you, if you can, then I guess it's historical fiction. It's funny because I, I, not long ago, I read um, Damnation Spring by Ash Davidson, but that took place in the late 70s, and someone referred to it as historical fiction, and, and I was like, oh no, that had to be like a 25-year-old that called it historical fiction. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not sure where the, the line, where you draw the line, but I think you probably can call it historical fiction at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, congratulations on a letter in the wall, and just on on how far you've you've come in this um, fiction writing, and then on your next project and everything. Thank you, Colin. I really really enjoyed talking to you. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.